Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We have always taken great pride in our economics at Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance. We've always covered the Nobel Prize winners, those of mathematics and maybe things more accessible with a certain care. I look at the John Bates Clark Award, my interview with Susan Athey of years ago, and of course, familiar guests on surveillance, including Michael Spence, Robert Schiller, and Paul Krugman. It is rare that we have somebody on who has a direct connection, so direct, is Willem Bowder with Mr. Nordhaus of Yale University. We are so honored to have you here this morning. Here's a kid at Cambridge out of the Netherlands who's scared stiff. You're sitting in the room, Nordhaus walks in, and is it correct to say Nordhaus jump-started your career at Yale University? Well, I think he certainly got me into the graduate program there because I'd forgotten to take my SATs. You forgot to take your SATs. Some of our staff did as well. You forgot to take your kid. Obviously, very acute, very bright. You, you blow it. You forgot to take your SATs. And here's Nordhaus of Yale. He's written the book on from Samuelson and all the acclaim. What was a Nobel Prize winner like 40 years ago? He was a great teacher. Uh, he taught uh, in the macroeconomics uh, course when I was a uh, uh, first and second year graduate student. And he just was a very inspiring teacher. Within this is your remembrance of James Tobin. I mean, folks, this links back now 60, 70, and 80 years. This is what we love to do, like Michael Spence's work with John Hicks years ago at Oxford. You wrote the definitive remembrance of James Tobin. Explain what Tobin and Nordhaus did to bring Robert Solo's economic growth forward. Well, really, in a way, uh, Nordhaus and Tobin, in a, some important joint papers, started modern environmental economics as a uh, integrated with growth theory, as a limit to growth. That's why it's so interesting to have Romer, uh, who with endogenous growth theory, uh, basically reduced the role of diminishing returns. Uh, Tobin and Nordhaus, and Nordhaus in his later work, uh, showed constraints on growth coming from the environmental side. So much of this comes back to Robert Solow of 57, the, the advent of modern growth. And then you go to, say, from the London School of Economics, Ronald Coase, with his limitations as well. Now we're at a critical point. Is the Nobel Committee trying to say something to the elites and to the academics about the immediacy of our uh, limits in environment? I certainly ex would interpret it that way. It's no coincidence, I think, that you know, in a time when environmental issues, Paris Club and all that, are all over the front page, that we get a, you know, a Nobel Prize for the father of modern environmental economics. I mean, Francine, I think it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Again, it goes back to these linkages of academics of the various schools in the transatlantic sphere. Yeah, and Willem, we follow it very closely. Uh, people follow it very closely. But, to, to, you know, translate what this actually means for the public at large. Will they uh, have a better understanding of, I guess, the crosshairs of environment and economics? Do, does winning a Nobel Prize actually mean you can educate the world to some of the things that you've discovered? Or is it only for the elite? Well, it gives you a platform, right? 
it doesn't change the substance, of course, of uh, what uh, Nordhaus and Romer uh, wrote, but it gives them a platform for which to address the general public. And I think that, uh, especially, I think, from the point of view of environmental economics, is immensely important because so much nonsense is being spoken, especially in this country, about environmental issues from up high, that it's important that somebody's actually done the work, done the hard analysis, studied the facts, as well as trying to put together coherent theories, that that person be listened to. Thank you so much. copyright of our guests. I am not going to send you the Compass Point Research Report, their weekly policy update. It is definitive on trying to look forward to what may, could, should, would get done in Washington. And at the bottom of the first page today, Isaac Boltanski and Lucas DeVos write, on the new Supreme Court. Isaac, wonderful to have you with us. And, and, and not that I want to look back at, at Kavanaugh and all the angst and emotion that we see and will see as he takes his position on the Supreme Court. But what is the Compass Point policy forward for our judicial body? Sure. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, in the morning note, what we try to do is go through three different takeaways. And the first one is relating to the court itself. And with Judge Kavanaugh now being sworn in over the weekend and to be sworn in again today, um, the court will have a reliably conservative majority. Right. And I think, I think that's going to prove to be consistently sympathetic for business interests. And that's going to have a wide swath of impacts on everything from EPA regulations to net neutrality to consumer protection. What are the ramifications of the next judged policy? I don't mean the uproar, but now we've had Gorsuch and now we've had Kavanaugh and there's going to be a third judge, let's assume, at some point. It's nonlinear. What is the ramifications of a third conservative judge? I think that it would be seismic. I think that what we would have, if there's a third conservative judge that's put onto the court, what we will have is a left who is going to predicate the entirety of its uh, judicial uh, positioning on a call to pack the court in 2020. And as a reminder, this is yeah. something that was tried by FDR yes. a few decades ago. And it's something that's already gained some degree of intellectual steam within Democratic community. I mean, John, I, I, I can't convey, John, the difference here with other nations, including the United Kingdom. Oh, yeah. What Mr. Boltanski just mentioned, and Noah Feldman is the expert on the, at the packing of the FDR court. It's, it's stunning, the next debate after Kavanaugh. The, the emotion and sensitivity of the Supreme Court just does not resonate or translate yeah. um, outside of America mm. at all. I experienced that in London just two weeks ago. Um, Isaac, it does translate to the electorate domestically in a massive way. I'm just wondering how high up is this issue going into the midterms in a month's time? It's, it's intriguing in that uh, there is a poll that we track that assesses the, quote, enthusiasm gap. And Democrats had enjoyed a healthy margin in that enthusiasm gap. 
And back in July, before the Kavanaugh Supreme Court fight began, <clears throat> Democrats enjoyed a 10-point margin. And, and effectively, that means that 10 percentage points more of Democrats describe their enthusiasm regarding the midterms as, as very important. That was 10 points back in July. That gap has narrowed down to two points as of the beginning of October. Yeah. And what this tells me is that the Supreme Court, unlike almost any other issue, can galvanize the political polls in this country. So are we saying, Isaac, to some extent, the drama of the last couple of weeks might have actually hurt the Democrats? I think that what our view is is that it, the Kavanaugh fight hurt the Democrats in certain states. And here I'm talking about states where uh, there is net support for Judge Kavanaugh, and in particular North Dakota, Missouri, uh, possibly even uh, Montana, Florida, West Virginia. Um, so it has hurt Democrats in those states, those battleground Senate states. But I actually think it's helped Democrats in some of the most competitive House races, because those are in districts that are largely suburban. And I think because of that divide, we have, once again, a mixed bag politically where the Kavanaugh fight helps Democrats in the House but hurts them in the Senate. Interesting. So is that your base case too, Isaac, that the House turns but it doesn't turn in the Senate at all? Heading 29, we have 29 days, and I think all of yeah. us know uh, these days in politics yeah. we're living in dog years, but 29 days out, the base case that we have and that we assign a 70% likelihood to yeah. is that the House will flip and the Senate will stay in Republican hands. I really which like means that, Which legislative logjam. Yeah. We're living in dog years we are. in politics right, right now. Right, We really are. Well, we are, yes. Where, where mean, does that leave you? At least that bill is fully <laughs> engaged in the election. I mean... John, John Isaac, Tuck my is dog is named Vet Bill, and he's <laughs> fully he's he's fully engaged. Uh, in as the, long as he's registered, that's all that matters. No, well, Vet Bill is registered, and he and I'm upset with him. He registered as an independent. <laughs> you know, I don't know which way Vet Bill's going. On this, uh, this is in New York, folks. So I don't know if it matters. It's not like if Vet Bill was in Ohio, he'd be canvassed. You know, Rob Portman would not be out there. Senator Portman would be out calling on vet bill. Uh, Isaac, when I look at policy, John Farrow had a great insight earlier about policy rollback. I mean, that's not going to happen with just a Democratic House, right? It's not. And I think that this is important. The number one question I get from, from our clients these days is, what will happen if the Democrats take the yeah, House? And the answer is nothing. In particular, very little. And yeah, the, tax, the tax law will be uh, intact until at least 2021 and, and more likely thereafter. And instead, all that we're going to have to really get our arms around is the slew of subpoenas and hearings and congressional investigations that will come, which does have some bearing on the pace of administrative regulatory changes. You know, the alphabet yeah. soup here in D.C., everything from CFPB to EPA, um, should expect subpoenas if the House flips, and that will slow down yeah. some of the administrative <clears throat> yeah. work. CBO did their monthly report, which I've skimmed through, and we went, John, is it just a round number from $600 billion up to $700? I think it was a $116 billion lift in the deficit. Is yeah. that a constraint on politicians after the election? I understand before the election, nobody cares. Are they actually going to care about the deficit and the lame duck or the forward Congress? I wish they should. It's, it's demoralizing that policymakers don't, but neither party has any interest yeah. in deficits when they're in the majority. What does it mean for the president, Isaac, and his policy coming out the other side of this? If we go back to 
what I dare say is normal, which is just legislative roadblocks in Washington, D.C. What does it mean for the president and the kind of avenues that he pursues? Well, he's going to have a, a choice, I think. And it, it's on the one hand, there could be more of an entrenchment, more of a focus on things that much like President Obama said, he can do with his phone and his pen. And so we start thinking about what are the administrative avenues for change that can be done simply and solely uh, by the executive branch. So that's path number one. Path number two, which is possible, but not probable, is that suddenly we see more of the freewheeling, centrist, uh, policy-making apparatus that some had hoped, and we get things like an infrastructure spending bill, I tend to think that instead what we're going to have is a president that is inundated with uh, subpoenas, congressional investigations, and decides to move on administrative items. Isaac, thank you so much. Congratulations on a terrific brief October Some very clear insight. Isaac Boltanski, Compass Point uh, Research. Our next guest, John, out of the combine of Adam Posen. Monica Duval, the Peterson Institute for International Economics Senior Fellow, joins us now. Monica, let's talk about something really interesting for me, at least, that's happening at the moment, which is the world's second largest economy is supporting growth. Um, The world's first largest economy is continuing to raise interest rates. What breaks? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure what breaks. The, um, the, 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 the overall context is is in the world is currently all very strange because in the middle of all this we've got this trade war that we don't know exactly what kind of implications it's going to have for the global economy on top of that we have investors wary of emerging markets because of rising interest rates in the US and because of vulnerabilities um, in certain parts of the world notably Argentina and Turkey but other places too including Brazil which um, we you, you two were just mentioning a few minutes ago in terms of the presidential election that took place yesterday so there, there's a lot of unknowns out there. A ton of unknowns out there. But do you view the slowdown in China as something separate from the trade story, Monica? And to what degree? I do. I do view it view it as something separate from the from the trade story. It's hard to say to what degree because we have a very hard time, very very hard time as economists integrating the trade stories with the overall macroeconomic stories. I mean, basically, our macroeconomic models are very, are very, um, we can't quite integrate our macroeconomic models with our trade models. So we have a lot of difficulty quantifying the effects of one on the other, but certainly there's impact. And one of the great things here, and it can be Brazil more commodity-based or China is, is goods, but the service sector, I mean, all these dynamics we're dealing with now, Monica, are amended or adjusted because so much of the world now is a growing service sector economy. Exactly, exactly. And this is one aspect that we um, have been struggling with trying to understand exactly how these different linkages between goods markets and services markets, and in particular the services, the services economy, um, reacts right. to all of the all of the things that are currently taking place. What's the dynamic that you and this, of course, goes with the heritage of Peterson of Nick Lardy? What is the dynamic of a service sector trade debate between China and the U.S. and the U.S. and China? Well, that's a that's an excellent question. I mean, looking at it from just what's been going on between China and and, and the U.S. 
um, it seems like that's not being really taken into account. We have been seeing tariffs back and forth on goods, um, but obviously all of these things are going to affect services at the end of the day. And so the big question to me is how much do we unhinge the services economy? Yeah. And by unhinging the services economy, how do we? How much do we unhinge the global macro economy? And Monica, I think it would be a missed opportunity to have you on the program and not talk about Brazil, given that yes. I understand you also my fault. run um, Latin American studies at Johns Hopkins University. Um, can you walk us through, Monica, what is happening in Brazil? Just a very simplified version from where I'm sitting is that we have a market-friendly candidate in Bolsonaro. Is that a market-friendly candidate that can be consistent over the next several years? Because it's also my understanding that he actually admits he doesn't have much of an understanding of economics and defaults to someone else on some of these big issues. Well, here's where the strangeness of this election comes in. So Bolsonaro has definitely caught the market's attention as a market-friendly candidate because of the person he appointed or has seems to have appointed as his economic chief, so to speak. So the that person is a U.S. is a Chicago-trained economist, an ultra-liberal, pro-market person. But Mr. Bolsonaro, his actual track record as a deputy in the lower house where he's been for the past 26 plus years is that he's been voting consistently with the Workers' Party, with the PT. Um, He was actually one of the very vocal um, anti-stabilization um, plan, um, the Plano Real that was put in place in the 90s to stabilize inflation. He was vocally against that at the time. And he has espoused views which are much more nationalistic and state intervention in, in, in a lot of state interventionism than, um, than markets seem to realize at this point, which is kind of strange because all these views are out in public. So here's the, here's the catch-22 question. The um, the fact that he has appointed an ultra-liberal pro- pro-market economist as his economic chief, does that mean that he's actually going to delegate every single economic decision to this guy as president, given that he himself, Mr. Bolsonaro, has quite the authoritarian streak? I think it's very hard to wrap our minds around that. Well, Monocro, I would say some of the EM tourists, um, and I hate to insult some of the people that probably have got behind that rally in, um, in Brazil over the last week, they're sitting here thinking that this is the view of Bolsonaro. Can I just put you on the spot, Monica, and, and ask you the question as to whether you think they are wrong? I do. That's, I do think that's they're really wrong. interesting. Tom, this is really interesting because the market has really got behind this candidate. Yes. As if he is going to introduce and implement and follow through on some very market-friendly um, proposals. What is their fiscal take? Uh, finally here, uh, Monica DeBull, what is the fiscal stance of Brazil? Can they afford on a debt and a tax revenue side to affect Bolsonaro policy? So the fiscal situation is very dramatic. Um, the fiscal deficit, the nominal deficit is pretty high at around 8 to 9% of GDP. There's a 25 primary deficit in place. Unless the situation's fixed, this this deficit is likely to rise over the medium term. Debt to GDP at the moment, going by the IMF's methodology, which is different from the Brazilian Central Bank's methodology, obviously that one is lower. 
um, the figures lower. Mm -hmm. But the IMF has Brazil at about 85 percent of GDP um, debt, public debt. And the and the and the prospect is that over the next two years, that number could reach as high as 100 percent. So it's a fiscal situation that's completely unhinged and unsustainable. And the measures that would have to be put in place would have to be put in place rather urgently. Um, Mr. Bolsonaro has not outlined what his plan for fixing the fiscal problems will be, um, nor has his economic advisor, by the way, who for the past three weeks has completely disappeared from public view view because right. he has clashed with Mr. Bolsonaro on a couple of important um, issues. One of them is exactly right. a financial transactions tax that he wanted to bring back. Uh, uh, Monica, thank you so much. Dr. Zabol, uh with the Peterson Institute out of the London School of Economics with us with a good briefing there on Brazil. You know, I say it doesn't matter, but when you look at the scope scale of Brazil, and I know it's distant into the south, it matters. You get instability down there. Yeah, it matters to LATAM and, and it matters to EM. It, I'd say it matters globally, particularly that interesting China, Latin America, South America dynamic uh, as well. It is a day of a Nobel Prize in economics and all worldwide our enjoy that it is Paul Romer of Stanford and William Nordhaus of Yale. We've had a wonderful morning talking to Willem Bowder, among others, and in the many people that we can talk to now and in the coming days, including Professors Romer and Nordhaus. I think a wonderful opinion can come with Stephen Keene. Steve Keene is in London. He's no relation to me. His family kept the E off, unlike the pretentious Keens I'm associated with. And Professor... Keen joins us uh, right now on this day of economic growth, innovation, uh, and some of the trends and mysteries of how we grow. Steve Keen, thank you so much for time, finding time to be with us. I would go back to one of the heroes of Nordhaus in Romer, which is Joseph Schumpeter, in a 1947 article, Creative Response in Economic History. How do we know within our economic history how we grow how we innovate, how we get better. Do we really have an answer? No, I think Schumpeter gave a better answer than Roma, frankly, though I quite like Paul Roma's work and I like the man as well. Um, but in terms of explaining what leads to innovation, Schumpeter gave a far better explanation of it, which really relates to um, seeing that the, say coming up with a technology which can drastically reduce the cost of production. Uh, now, that might seem you know, pretty banal and obvious, but in fact, that's more, that's, there's a deeper analysis in Schumpeter about how that happens than in any modern macroeconomic theory, which generally just thinks the technology sort of falls like manna from heaven. Yeah, and within that, and I go back to a magisterial book that was my book of the year a number of years ago, Thomas McCraw, Prophet of Innovation, is this idea that we're in now of technology, the mystery of it, and is it taking over our lives? Is the technology now the same as it was years ago? Oh, well, in terms of what technology, technology is always new, Tom, in the sense that what comes along is something which nobody's thought of before. Now, I'm probably going to be accused of being an Elon Musk fanboy here, but for example, Musk's uh, idea that if you could get a rocket to land on its 
on back on its tail again and reuse the rocket, you could cut the cost of uh, getting objects into space by a factor of 100. That's the sort of thing which leads to innovation and massive profit, as well as providing something that never existed before. So, uh, you know, if you think about street lighting, it used to be gas, it used to be whale oil, and along comes Edison with electric wires uh, transmitting power to incandescent tubes. That That is a huge advance, advance which either provides something that's never existed before and then completely takes over another market or drastically cuts the cost of something that's already happening and gives profit to the entrepreneur. Professor Keene, I'm wondering if you could address the connection between U.S. or not just U.S. government, but government participation and these very innovations that you describe. Because, for example, with SpaceX and the deployment of new launch technology and recovery technology, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the U.S. government basically got out of the business and turned that over to private industry because they didn't want to pay for it anymore. Previously, cost was not an object. Yeah, that's a, the extent to which innovation occurs really reflects, in a sense, people that can afford to lose large amounts of money. And I think you've got to combine the insights of Mariana Mazzucuto at one extreme and Bill Janeway at the other, uh, in that Mariana focuses upon the role of the government innovation and Bill focuses upon the role of wealthy entrepreneurs in innovation. And in both cases, it's the capacity to lose money without being wiped out by it that means you can take that risk to innovate in the first place. So the drive to innovate uh, for, for NASA came from uh, the, you know, basically the, the political struggle between America and Russia with Kennedy setting that incredible objective of getting a man on the moon within seven years and, and, the, and the American technology doing it regardless of expense. And that's a huge loss leader. No private corporation could ever have begun that in the way that NASA did. Fast, you know, slow forward 50 years from then, and you look at it and think, well, it's got to the stage where private companies can take this on because the loss leading has been done by NASA. And there is a combination between the two, and Elon Musk has just recently quite openly said he owes an enormous debt to NASA in enabling him to do what he's done. So there's a symbiosis between the two, not the rivalry that Austrian economists often go on with. So using that kind of perspective, what can you say now about the technological advances that we point to in the use of the Internet and a connected world? Where will we see that play out? Well, that's been an interesting one again, because we, we know that the founder of the Internet uh, has become disgusted with his own creation because he was, because it was created in DARPA. That's another thing. It was begun by a, 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 somebody working for a military, part of the American military for a communication system. So it began in the government sector. It then had no, because it was released for, uh, totally free open source. Uh, it then became adopted by a large number of commercials, and now we have companies like right. Google and Facebook dominating it and mining us for it. Uh, so one of the uh, directions that's being spoken about is to tap back to the stage where it can't be dominated by large private corporations. So uh, there's still tons of innovation to go on, and often the next innovation is fixing up the mistakes of the one before. Stephen Keane with us with Kingston University as we celebrate two Nobel Prize winners uh, with good comment and perspective from uh, Professor uh, Keane. William Nordhaus, among other things, Steve Keane, was handed Paul Samuelson's jewel of 1948 and tried to move forward a textbook. This is in decades of teaching at Yale uh, University. Are the textbook of 1948, are the textbooks, the classic, I don't know, 19 editions, whatever, of Nordhaus, are they still usable or have we just so far moved on from traditional economic academics? Those textbooks should be burnt 
I don't mind contributing carbon if we burn all the textbooks that have been created since Samuelson because, frankly, they've led economics massively astray. Uh, that's why I've decided to be, create what I call the Nobel Prize in economics as opposed to Nobel or Nobel because these textbooks and the crazy ideas that have been uh, in, incorporated in them from from delusional economic theory is why economics is so completely irrelevant to today. So, for example, I've, you know, I'm glad Norhouse got the prize in the sense that he's done work which extends mainstream economics to consider ecological issues to some extent, but a far better uh, recipient of the prize would have been Dennis Meadows for the totally innovative dynamic non-equilibrium approach he built with the limits to growth models back in 1972-73. So um, I, you know, I have yeah. no time whatsoever for Samuelson's textbook, and if I, could, if I could wipe it off the face of the planet, I would, because it's led economics up a huge garden path. And full disclosure, folks, I sort of knew what the answer would be like when I set up Professor Keene with that question. So, Pim, you want one more question here with... See what he can burn next. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after that, I'm not so sure, Professor Keene. Anything else we should get rid of to make ourselves smarter? Uh, Yeah, that's a good point. We have to get rid of thinking in terms of equilibrium, which economists are still dominated by, and virtually every prize in economics goes to somebody who uses equilibrium-style models rather than far from equilibrium, and get rid of the belief we can model capitalism as though it's a barter system and it's fundamentally monetary. So those things need to happen, and until such time as it does, I'll always be a critic of the fundamental basis of the Nobel Prize, though I must say, particularly the Paul Romer, who's had the courage to challenge the same nonsense in a wonderful yeah. paper called The Trouble of Macroeconomics. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that, that Romer won the award, and I'm not unhappy that Nordhaus got it. I'd be much happier if it went to Dennis Meadows instead. Stephen King, thank you so much for incisive conversation and opinion. He is at Kingston University and uh, takes a, a different approach. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.